Hello out there. It's me, Mike. I'm doing a little something different with this episode of the Mike Drop Moment, and I thought I'd tell you what's in store for you first versus playing a little clip of the interview. I really wanted to talk to someone who was just great at kind of creating this invitation to a deeper level of understanding. I wanted to bring someone who really did a great job of bringing their voice to the forefront of current events because I believe that that is where mic drop moments come from. Not from being the most studied, not necessarily from having the perfect seven-step process for this or that, but from saying the thing that your audience really needs to hear. And that's why I'm excited about this episode. I think you're going to love it. My guest today is R. Eric Thomas. He's the national best-selling author of Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America. It is a hilarious memoir that I, I recommend everybody reads. I devoured it in like a weekend. It's available everywhere books are sold. He's also a playwright. He was a host of The Moth in Philadelphia in D.C., and he is the senior staff writer for L.com, where he writes Eric Reads the News, a daily current events and culture column, which is also hilarious, timely, accurate, and just so concisely talks about exactly what's going on from a fresh perspective. He's won a ton of awards for his plays. He is a best-selling author on all of the lists. He's been published in the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, on and on and on. This is the guy that you should be reading. He also has an upcoming book that I cannot wait for. It's called Reclaiming Her Time, The Power of Maxine Waters, and it takes a look at the work, wit, and wisdom of California Representative Maxine Waters. That book comes out October of 2020, and you're going to want to make sure to pre-order that. We also, in this episode, talk about Taylor Swift, about how our Eric Thomas turned a thirst tweet into a career writing, and how to capture your voice, your character, and tell your story in a world that needs more truth. Let's dive into this episode with our Eric Thomas. So you have a story to tell, and you wonder how to own the stage and give that killer speech that will captivate the masses. You don't just want to speak to them. You want to transform your audience. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment. Bold conversations about public speaking, storytelling, and business that give you real-world valuable takeaways so you can craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your mic drop moment. Here is your host, Mike Ganino. At midnight, Taylor Swift released Folklore. Uh, I've spent... Yes. I mean, luckily I'm on the West Coast because I got to listen to it at 9 p.m. last night. I didn't have to stay up till mm-hmm. midnight because I'm 40 and that doesn't work. <laughs> right. And so... I've spent all day going through every single song. And then I saw on Twitter that you made a comment about wearing like a chunky knit. So have you listened to the whole thing yet? I have. I've listened to it a couple times through. Uh, I did. I had to do a lot of driving today. And so I just listened to it in the car. I'm I'm obsessed with it. Like I've always, you know, I, I've never been, I wouldn't say I'm a Swifty, but I've definitely been throughout her career. I've been like, yeah, I'm for that. Or like, no, this phase is not for me. Um, but like, she is such a good storyteller, and this is an album of just like campfire stories. It's also an album that she wrote, I think, to appease the ghost of the woman who lives in the house that Taylor bought in Rhode Island, Rebecca Harkness. Harkness, because um, it's like you know the song "Greatest Amer- Last American Dynasty" is about Rebecca Harkness and uh, her husband. Who cares? Who cares? Um, but Betty is was Rebecca's nickname. Um, and so like all the songs are about this like 
this wild love affair and the scorned scorned is a weird word um this woman was done wrong by this whole town apparently i've done a lot of wikipediaing about this so i'm just like oh this is a this is an offering to a ghost i'm obsessed with this album think of imagining like quarantine in a house where you Mm -hmm. think there's a ghost of course you have to write an album to the ghost to be like hey i'm cool leave me alone i'm honoring you makes sense i like this conspiracy this is true it's yeah i think it's i think it's actually what's going on in her and i also feel like like there was this article in the new york times a couple months ago about people who were quarantining in places where there were ghosts and like four out of the six people that they interviewed were queer. And so I feel like quarantining with a ghost is a queer value. And so like this album that has like very sort of like queer energy, uh, that is also an offering to a ghost. It like, it just all feels very like queer canon. It feels like, like uh, the the perfect sort of like next step for, for Taylor Swift. Like she's like, I'm going to do my pride anthem. And then I'm going to write a sort of semi sapphic offering to a ghost who I'm quarantining with. And I'm like, yep, that works. I like that. And in that, it's like very meta because that alone has been almost like a love story. Like there's like a lesbian love story in the ghost. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It's, I mean, like it is perfect. Like I, I am also, I'm putting this out there in the universe. I feel like this album would make a fantastic Broadway musical. And I'm, I like I want to write the book for it. I don't think that I am the right person. I think there are plenty of like women who could write this uh musical very well, but I would love to I would love to take a crack at it. This is this is my like jagged little pill. This is my my magnum opus. I mean, and this is I mean this is going to happen. There's going to be. I, I was on. I was on Twitter this morning with my friend Hillary Hillary uh, Weiss Presswood, and uh, she's a copywriter, so she's really witty with dialogue and stuff. And we were like going back and forth writing a Zach Braff directed film about this already. Oh wow! And I think a Broadway musical is even better fit because there's so much like. Think of like the moodiness of the lighting. Oh my gosh! Yes, it's like I mean, it's like Jane Eyre. It's like you know, it's just like every like gray shafts of light and people in like long flowy sweaters. And I also feel like I feel like it takes place in two time periods at once. It's like like Rebecca Harkness's time, like the I guess the forties or whatever, and then present day. So you've got like slouchy sweaters and then like like long a line dress like a line dresses and like bustles. Oh my gosh, it's just going to be a visual feast. Oh, I'm so excited. And imagine all the fan fiction that'll pop up of people being like, "Oh my gosh, did you see that weird little cat in the corner with the light? I think it means this." Like, <laughs> yeah. there's going to be, there's got to be, it's got to be someone who really understands like the Taylor Swift uh, methodology of of secrets because what an opportunity to really weave some things in. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like layers upon layers. That's the other thing I think is so interesting about Taylor is that, you know, she is very good at laying down clues. I feel like her, she trains her fans to be like FBI agents. Like those people pour over everything that she tweets or sends out with the a level of intensity that like I have never seen. And like, so like I I feel like one I would like to watch a, a television series where Taylor Swift solves crimes like I just want to watch her go around and be like well if you like 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 Mr Monk you know like picking up one like strand of hair and being like well I know who did it uh, case closed <laughs> I could totally see it and then like she occasionally calls in like what is that woman's name who did the um, Don't Kill Cats show 
Uh, oh, in Vegas, like yeah, she called yeah, yeah. her in for a special. Like, <laughs> I need the I need the heavyweights here. We need the big ones. You know, exactly. Like, is Taylor Swift the one who finally gets Carol Baskin? Oh, you know what? I feel like that that is that is the. I feel like that's the end of 2020. Like Taylor's like, <laughs> okay, I was working on this like ghost album. Got that out of the way. The ghost is happy. Now back to my initial investigation of Tiger King. Um, this I is. <laughs> what yeah, if that happened. becomes like the third like because i think part of the reason this album was surprising is because we just got lover like maybe 12 months ago and so mm-hmm. like what if the what if the carol baskins album comes out and there's like an album of taylor of like how she uncovered like like i just imagine a song with like innuendos about sardines i like i would never stop screaming like it's just so like that's such a brilliant idea where she's just like uh i've solved the crime it's on the last track um but it's only that track is only available at target um so you can listen to my investigation but if you want to know who who did it uh well you gotta go to target (laughs) i mean and and you but you know this because you just you just had a best-selling book with Here For It. You've got another book coming out this fall. You know how hard it is to move product these days. You've got to put that secret on the last track and target only. I love it. Yeah, you got to have a gimmick. I really like, I was like, you know, with my forthcoming book, I'm like, oh, do we need to recall it and like put like golden tickets in the books or something? <laughs> you know, like put a, like a, like a, a deep mystery, like maybe a, a voting, uh, a voting application or something or right right so you've got reclaiming her time the power of maxine waters that's coming out in october correct yeah yeah it's coming so out may- maybe it's like maybe there's like a scratch and sniff section where like throughout you can like <laughs> smell the like because i imagine the perspiration of maxine waters is epic and godly <laughs> i think <laughs> I imagine so as well, or or even just like just like various like I don't know if she wears perfume. If she does, I'm sure it is also epic and godly. But otherwise, yeah, the perspiration. I I would love a scratch and sniff that was like this is Maxine Waters' perspiration, and it's just like the best uh, aroma you've ever encountered. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to call the publisher right after we finish. Uh, you know, I love it, and they've got that whole. You live you live on the East Coast, and they've got that whole area of New Jersey that's like the scent labs where they make all of the scents. Yeah, so you could just like go up there and drive around and be like, you know what? We're just gonna we're gonna keep mixing until we find the perfect scent for her perspiration. I think that is so smart. You know, yeah. and it's so funny. The um, uh, you know, uh, book swag is like you know, like every other swag market is something is has just gone completely out the window. Um, like in terms of wild ideas, and the um sequel to Call Me by Your Name, Find Me, they actually did make a custom scent. Um, that they sent out with promotional copies of the book, and I got one, and it's very it's it's a lovely scent. I was like, I thought it was going to smell like like peaches uh uh but it did not which is i was like hmm, okay well uh this like nice uh, sort of woody uh beach smell is is great too so we need a custom scent for maxine yeah that that book should have smelled like peaches and bleach if you know what i mean yeah like, exactly, exactly. it was all set to be like oh all right but no it was it did not uh it didn't it didn't go there I love it. So, so you are one of my favorite voices. Well, you were one of my favorite voices on the internet. Now you've become one of my favorite voices on my like, you know, uh, Kendall as well with with here for it. And and I think you know, for those of us who know you and are in love with your work, we obviously know the story 
in a way of like truly being a one hit wonder for ending up as a senior staff writer for L. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about this photo, the the photo of Barack <laughs> and, yes. and, and Enrique that led you to becoming a writer for L. Yeah, it's I mean, it's the wildest thing. It's like the, uh, this weird Cinderella story. You know, there's this photo it, that seems like it's now it seems like it's from another universe completely because uh, it's uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, President Obama and uh, uh, President Enrique Peña Nieto, uh, the former president of Mexico. But uh, and they're striding down this red carpet, uh, I think from the G8 or G7 conference in Canada. And there's like two Mounties on the side and they're like mid stride and they're all laughing. And it looks like a poster for a movie called All Your Thirst uh, uh, on screen for two and a half hours uh it's like it looks like it's like a it looks like the all the posters for sex in the city to be honest they look like the all-male cast of sex in the city and so i wrote about that i wrote i I called it that i called it destiny's dilfs i called it uh um oh tom ford presents the avengers like it just it was such an attractive photo and so well composed and uh I, so I wrote about it on Facebook. I just, you know, put this little Facebook status up and I'd had statuses go viral before, like, you know, like a lot of people, but that didn't, that doesn't mean anything. Um, but this one went really viral, at least by, um, at least by the standards that I was measuring at that point. Um, uh, and it's like 16,000 shares and 70,000 likes. And it got the attention of the former editor, excuse me, the former site director at L.com, Leah Chernikoff. And so she sent me a Facebook messenger message and was like, hey, do you want to write a column every day uh, where you just like say deranged things about pop culture and politics? <laughs> and I was like, is that a is that a job or just something I can do? Because I'll either one. And she's like, yeah, let's try it out. And I was like, OK. And so I started um, uh, just after July 4th of 2016. And um, it like it just it caught on, and I feel like there's so many things in my life that I'm like, if I had tried to plan this, I would not have, I wouldn't have done any of these things, and it would not have gone as well. Um, but falling literally like thirsting after a sitting president, and then falling backwards into a job that is actually perfect for me, like is something I never could have imagined. It wasn't even really on my like five year plan radar, but it completely changed my life. Can you imagine though if you're like you know you're you're meeting with like a a, a guidance counselor and they're like what do you want to do and you're like well I'd like to like thirst trap post about presidents and right? then I'm gonna get a weird message from a woman I don't know like did her message in Facebook go to that other Facebook bucket of messages where it's like people you don't actually know and you're like is this are you real or are you Russian. Well, no, it's so funny. It's, I, it's like, it's a divine, it was like a divine intervention. It was like, you know, <laughs> Betty, like Taylor Swift's ghost, like pushed it right to the the front. Um, It came up, I can still see it popping up at the bottom of my screen, which is weird, yeah, because we did not know each other. And there's no reason for Facebook to have pushed this message to me, Um, but it did. Um, And so I like wrote back right away. But yeah, I can't, I like, honestly, as I look, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where my career goes going forward and you know everyone's like always like dream big do like say big things but like if like if i was like yeah i think i'd like to like just make up a column for myself um 
and have it published daily on a website that has 13 million views per month. It's like, okay, yeah, great. Why don't you go open Willy Wonka's candy factory after that? It's like, it's, <laughs> it's not comprehensible, but it worked out. Well, and even the path to get there, it's like, okay, so, so what would you, you know, it's like, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to study magazine journalism. I'm just like, <laughs> right. I don't even know what you would study for that. Except, I mean, one of the things that's clear from the work and, and what I think would be, what I'd love to talk about a little bit is having a perspective, because one of the things I think that, that you, part of the reason that you have a column called Eric Reads the News is, is because of your perspective. And, and I'm just mm-hmm. going to read off some of the titles of this. I just sent it to my good friend. Uh, I sent her, I said, I was interviewing you and I said, oh, you should check out his things. And she said, I don't, I'm canceling my weekend because I clearly need to read all of these based on the headlines. Some of the headlines are Harry Styles is horny for produce and euphemisms in the watermelon sugar video. Yes. How can I run Kimmy Schmidt's life when I can't even run my own? There's a Laura Dern speech for every quarantine mood. Britney's gym, which was burned down, is now fine. And <laughs> all of America must bow before Elmo, our chaotic Antifa overlord. So <laughs> where do your ideas come? Is it literally just something happens and you think, oh, I got some words for that? I mean, yeah, like it really is. I, I sit on Twitter all day long. And, you know, honestly, necessity is kind of the mother of invention in in and with respect to the column, because because, it, you know, in most circumstances, it's a daily column. You know, there's some weeks where I'm working on something longer term. And so it's not every day. Um, and or I've taken some time off, you know, I've taken a lot of time off recently um, just to, like, keep my head screwed on straight. But, yeah, I'll just sit on Twitter and whatever the conversation is, whatever's sort of coming across the, the timeline, I um, I'll I'll write about um, and like I spend, it's an interesting way of sort of approaching the world because a lot of things make me super angry. Um, but the way that I'm always navigating Twitter is asking myself, can I make a, is this something that I can find humor in? And so, yeah, like when Tucker Carlson um, complained, Oh my Lord, I hate to give Tucker Carlson any attention whatsoever, but he complained about the Sesame street anti-racism uh, special that CNN did. Um, and, you know, he was like, he was like, you're, these kids are being indoctrinated with, you know, Elmo, like, and Elmo was literally like asking his dad, like his, his dad is in this like Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville, like Hawaiian shirt explaining racism to Elmo. And I'm like, okay, this is already camp. Um, and, and then Tucker Carlson's like, this is, I can't believe they're showing our kids this. And I'm like, oh, okay. So this is ripe for comedy. You're begging me to make fun of this. Um, and in, in a way that I think my hope is that like, there's just so much bad news that if we can just take some of the bad news and just turn it into um, something that you can laugh at and then right size, like that, that's sort of the main ambition of the column. Well, and it's, it's, we're so much, you know, like in my background, I, I did improv and I studied at Second City and, and Improv Olympic and UCB. And, and so much of it is that, that we have to be able to look at things through a satirical lens or a comedic lens to be able mm-hmm. to one, make, give us a little distance from the pain of it sometimes mm-hmm. to be able to laugh at it, but also sometimes to understand it. Because if you look at something just on face value, it's like, wh- what is happening here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, it's translation. And, you know, like, I think the comedic language is a storytelling language and, you know, as, and there's plenty of other storytelling languages, but every, every storytelling language, I think, is a, a way of translating and understanding um, 
information and we get all we get is information you know um we we get like a barrage of perspectives and facts and raw data and like complicated uh analysis and it's all coming through every screen at us and um and i think we're really hungry for a story for interpretation and for like that rise and fall and a joke is a great way of digesting um and saying okay i got it i understand what the story is and and i have a little bit of a narrative and also i i get to laugh at the end of it so that i can move on with my day otherwise you get stuck you get you get drowned in information and is and i have to ask because you're you're writing a daily column in a time where daily I was, I was watching Rachel Maddow with my husband the other night and was like, how did, who is her support system to get her through this every night on the news Mm, to have mm -hmm. to like, not only, not only be part of the, the zeitgeist that is 2020 with the rest of us, but also then to have to be a voice in it is such an interesting thing. So for you, are there things as you're thinking about them that you think, Oh, you're too close or not enough distance, or does it, is it therapeutic in a way for you to kind of write through it? Um, I think I, I do, I do try and set up a pretty clear distance, uh, or like pretty clear boundaries for myself, um, around, uh, certain topics. And it's, it's weird. Cause it's, it's like quicksand. You, you, you sort of, you go, <laughs> you wade into a new story and you're like, Oh no, I'm miserable right now. And so, and then I, I, you know, grab a vine and pull myself out, you know, like a, a, a venture in an eighties movie. Um, it doesn't, it's interesting. Like, it doesn't feel necessarily therapeutic to write the column, mostly because there is a level of intensity that I have to apply to it to get it done and get it done in time. And then I'm sort of interacting with people online and it's product as opposed to um, something that like feels like I made it for myself. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think I, there are times where I will watch other people who are doing similar things like, you know, Trevor Noah or reading, reading Alexandra Petri. But like, I, I uh, like, honestly, the thing that has always made me happy my entire life is really just like burying my nose in entertainment news. Like I'd rather, I'm like, okay, I, I vote. I called my Senator today. I made fun of Tucker Carlson. Now let me find out what the gross of the, like the top, the box office gross for the last weekend is that I'm very interested in. And that's therapy for me. Well, it, it makes sense. You're, you're uh, the top, this is the first show where I've ever talked about Taylor Swift for 10 minutes with somebody. So it makes <laughs> sense. Like, oh yeah, we're, you're well-versed in this already. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, like, and like, I don't know, I love pop culture. Um, and um, I, I think, I think it's just so interesting. And I like one of the things, you know, as I try, I, I also write about pop culture a fair amount, but I try to keep enough distance that it's still something, it's still like uh, um, a respite, a, a place that I can go to just like luxuriate in all this weird minutia of, about the, about show business that like nobody cares about or like, inventing theories about taylor swift's like ghost lover i like it like i that will get me keep me going all weekend i'm very excited about it <laughs> there's like so much to the, and, you, and you have this oh and you have the perfect thing i'm looking outside in la and it's like a sunny day you've mm-hmm. got moody stormy weather right now too, which is perfect for folklore oh, oh so my jealous. gosh yeah i'm gonna put on the chunkiest cardigan i own <laughs> I love it. So when you when you first started writing, you know, because I think a lot of people when they're when they're a lot of the people that are listening to this show are people that that want to be public speakers that are public speakers.
speakers that are, you know, entrepreneurs who are sharing their voice and trying to like step into being themselves a little bit more, which is, I think at the end of the day, what really great public speaking is, what really mm-hmm. great storytelling is. And so when you first, you know, you, you post a thirst tweet about presidents mm-hmm. and then L, you know, L.com says, hey, 13 million people want to hear from you every day. You want to write for us. Was it immediately like, oh, yeah, I'm 100 percent that person? Or was there a period of time where you had this imposter syndrome? And was your voice really clear to you from the beginning? I'm just curious, like, how do you how does it feel to wake up and be like, oh, 13 million people saw me write about Ivanka Trump today? Right. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. It's so funny. I think about voice a lot. Um because, you know, I, I the column has a very sp- specific voice. I, I, you know, I describe it in the book as, you know, a, a, I describe it in a couple of ways. But one of the ways I describe it is like a very excitable gay person shouting the news at you through a bullhorn. Um, and um, I think that's true. Uh, and but I also, you know, I, I write plays and I write screenplays and voice is and in you know, my book, I think, is also pretty very voicey. And it's something that I've try to work out like uh, an arithmetic around or a philosophy around um, because I, I would, you know, people are like, well, how do I get my voice to um, how, how do I really bring my voice to the, to the fore? And I don't have a, I don't have a, um, I, I don't have an equation to do it. The, the way that I discovered how to use my voice was I think just, by doing it and by receiving positive feedback um, from both live audiences and and then readership that um, uh, that indicated that people were into hearing my voice, I got my start telling uh, doing storytelling shows with um, the Moth and with an organization in Philadelphia called First Person Arts, and so I started off just doing storytelling, uh, five minute stories about my life and. That's a really great training ground um, for figuring out how you want to present yourself and and narrative to the world and seeing where people are checking in, plugging in and pulling back. And then I, I, I moved from storytelling to hosting the show um, and just uh, extemporaneous banter, I think, is a great, great training ground because you you learn a lot about what bubbles up to the top of your mind and then you learn by through trial and error what um where you and an audience are intertwined so in answer to your question like i was i was doing the same kind of thing when i started the column like i sort of knew what the vibe that she that my editor was going for based on the the post that went viral i was like great it's hyper it's hyperbole it's um it's a little bit sassy it's um it's very conversational um and and go you know but i do think if you know if you go back and um look at some of the some of the ones from the summer of uh 2016 uh there was a little bit of um of trial and error and there, you know, there were places where it was like a little too casual or there was, you know, places where, um, it, you know, it, it might've been, um, uh, it, it might have seemed to be, uh, a put on, um, at this point, I feel very, very comfortable to literally just sit down and, um, download 
my brain onto the page. And that's because I write as myself every single day, um, including weekends. You know, I'm doing other projects on Saturdays. And on Sunday, I have a, a weekly newsletter that goes out where I do a, a little a personal essay. So, yeah, I just I've really gotten to know myself, my voice over the last um, four or five years. And I, I like I think that's I don't know. I think that might be the only way. Do, do you think that, have you encountered other tactics for like really developing your your voice? I, I think that you're I think that what you were saying about doing it with an audience of some sort is so important because I think so often we think that I need to go write in a cave somewhere and come out with a finished book. I need to go uh, plan my, I need to write a speech mm-hmm. and write my story and then work on it for seven months and then bring it out. And I think like what you're saying about the the feedback from moth audiences, the hosting as well. I mean, I, I know for me, emceeing, hosting, doing this, even doing this podcast. I mean, I, I've been doing this for eight months now. And in the beginning, I really was like, oh, I have to interview this person and have like the perfect questions for them. And mm-hmm. I realized no, I'm not Barbara Walters. People are listening to this podcast because they want to hear me talking to someone. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I I think that you're, I think that you're right on that. You've got to do it in front of people. Yeah. And I think you learn so much from a, a live audience and, you know, even, I don't know, you know, obviously for the past four months, I have not had a live audience. I haven't, (laughs) you know, had a single other person besides my husband, like listen to me uh, in person. Um, but you can also learn a, a decent amount through like through a Zoom audience or um, or, you know, even like doing I, I think the practice of doing podcasts um, and being in conversation with people and then seeing what where listeners plug in or respond is also really, really educational. Um, I You know, interviewing is a is um, a, a fantastic skill. Uh, uh, for voice building, I think I find myself to be a very stodgy interviewer when I do it for for L. Um, you know, and like, and that's not what people want. They want like me to bring my full self to the interview, but I get very nervous. Um, but this morning, actually, I had to, I did a promotional interview for a, a play that is I have going up on Zoom next week, and uh, the interviewer Kyle Hiller, uh, you know, he started the phone call just like so personable, and he was like. Hey, you know, uh, thanks for doing this. Before we go any further, like, uh, and you, you can't answer this question with the word fine. How are you? Like, how are you really? And like, he just had such a warmth um, and uh, genuineness and authenticity to uh, his demeanor that I like talked for 15 minutes about <laughs> how I was. I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be promoting something. But like, anyway, Kyle, it's rough out here. Um, and that's, I think, you know, the authenticity, like really plugging into like, who you are and what you are trying to um what you're trying to put out into the world like not as a product but just as sort of an energy i think really helps to to bring your voice out yeah and i feel like i feel like this is more and more what people want and Mm -hmm. and i think even beyond just like the the weird lotus flower gift that 2020 is turning out to be in so many ways and a painful gift. But mm-hmm. I think that, that I feel like more and more that's where we're headed towards is, is wanting people that, that don't have the the perfect answer or that don't have the, you know, the seven steps figured out necessarily, but people that have a perspective and an opinion are, and can hop on a show and be like, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but I know that I'm okay, mm-hmm. no matter what we talk about. I'll be yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and that takes, you know, like it, it's a lot of background work, you know, to make sure that like, oh, do I, do I, not necessarily do I have opinions, but like, do I, am I plugged in with things that I care about? Do I have passions? Am I plugged into those passions? Um, when I hear people talk, whether it's like a TED talk or a story or a speech, um, I am really, I always uh, zoom in on what is, what is, what is making them most excited? What are they passionate about? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people, you know, I watch a lot of workshops and how tos and whatnot. And, you know, there's plenty of people who are like, I'm going to show you how to do this. I have the secret to writing a screenplay. I have this, I have that. And I'm like, okay, great. You've got great presence, but are, is this what makes your heartbeat? Um, mm-hmm. And if it is what makes your heartbeat, I need, I want to see it. I want to see your heart beating through uh, through the screen, um, or from the stage. And that's a, that takes vulnerability, um, uh, to a certain extent. And it also takes, um, a, a, um, a level of, um, self-awareness that, uh, I think is key. I think a lot of rhetoric around, um, public speaking is sort of creating this, um, this infomercial, um, uh, barrier between yourself and the audience i i'm not i'm not sure that's the right way to go but i'm not an expert i mean and i think it's it's funny too i was talking to someone today about this with public speaking of like think about like most of the public speaking books they're so boring Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's like stand this way what to do with your hands don't do this don't do that it's like okay so and they all kind of say the same thing and i think it's because that's not really what any of us want anyway we yep. don't want a perfect presentation. Even in, I teach a lot of storytelling workshops inside of businesses for sales teams and leaders. And it's the one thing that they struggle with is like, well, how many words should be on my slide? And it's like, I don't know. And no one cares. <laughs> right. uh, what I want is you to show up in the room here with me and connect, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how does, so, so we're talking about character and having a perspective. And so and I think when you talk about character, you're not saying uh, I'm portraying someone else, you're being yourself, but how is the character that writes for L different than the character who wrote here for it and different for the character who wrote reclaiming her time? That's a really, really good question. Yeah. Like for, um, I, I think, so I think those three characters are, um, they're all me. It's all authentically me, but I think it's, um, it, I sort of imagined a um, recording studio where an engineer is like pushing certain levels up and, and pushing certain levels down. Um, and so for uh, the column, there is, because it is so immediate and there is a, a love, a need for like electricity in the words, there is, um, I push up the, the anticness of, of the writing and the sort of um, the, the, um, uh, the, the personable, uh, and so it really is like, I think of, it's like me with like three cups of coffee at brunch, screaming at you about this wild thing that we both saw in the news. Um, with re, uh, with reclaiming your time, I, I knew that my voice needed to be in service of someone else's story. Um, and so I sort of, I pulled a lot of it back. Um, one, because Maxine Waters, Representative Maxine Waters is, is herself a very dynamic and funny person. And so like it, it, you know, it's, it's sort of like the calibration of like of a, a stage show or, or um, a presentation. You can't, you know, you, you can't have two leads. So it's like, great. I don't need to be the lead in this book. I'm going to, 
I am just providing like the baseline. I'm writing the story. I'm every once in a while, there is a, um, you know, there's a, a burst of personality. Um, and my co-author, Helena Andrews Dyer, is also a very funny person. Um, and, and, and so I was like, great. I don't need to push the anticness up because people are going to crack open this book looking for information. And so I've got to be a vessel to get information across in a way that is dynamic, but also true. And I think between those two is here for it where, um, I did want to provide a, an entertaining experience, but I also knew that like here for it is um, it's a memoir and essays. And so um, the book is a, a storytelling vehicle. And so at the end of the day, story was uh, king in the book. And so the voice always had to be in service of the story. And so there are plenty of places where, you know, I, the, the way I write a lot of times, it's like, it's like a sitcom script. It's like a joke every five seconds. Um, <laughs> and my editor very wisely um, would would say to me, like, you can pull back here and you can just be uh, yourself uh, or you can just be um, serious. Um, and so if I, but if I'm not leading with authenticity, if, if everything isn't coming authentically from myself, both joke and seriousness, it doesn't work. Um, so yeah, I, I think, it's interesting, you know, as I as I try and figure out how to translate, you know, the work that I do into other properties, into like, you know, if I were to like write a, a like a, a television show or a movie like about um, about here for it or in, like in, with the same voice, it's it's interesting to try and figure out what are how does the character move and like the only way I think it works is sort of always clinging to the the core concept which is like the like a person who is being authentic and enthusiastic um and and reaching for references like those are so those are always the three sort of um stars that i sort of um orbit around that is not good astronomy so uh, i apologize to all the astronomers listening we're gonna get we're gonna get uh hate mail and ats Right, <laughs> the astronomer club. Oh, you know, and you know what's interesting? I love this idea you were saying, and it, and it uh, of almost there being like different dials, and it's like, okay, mm -hmm. we're turning up the, you know, these three things are innately who you are, and yet here the thing that serves the goal or the intended outcome of this this article, this piece, this play, this book, we're gonna we're gonna get the mix a little different. It's kind of it's kind of like cooking in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it. I, I absolutely. Yeah. It's like putting a little bit more spice. The other thing is, you know, people have said, are you going to like, would you release a, um, a collection of your um, columns, you know, from, from L and one, they are so tied to the moment that, you know, I go back and read things from a couple of years ago and I'm like, what is, what am I talking about? <laughs> um, and, and a lot of the, you know, I, I use a lot of a contemporary slang in the column and I'm like, what is that word? What am I referencing? Um, so, um, but I think also underneath of all that, underneath of the practical, there is also like the energy and it's like, can you maintain the, this energy for, a, a, a the length of a book? Um, and, and that's where the mixing comes in. It's like, okay, you're not going to release a whole album that is all, well, I guess you could release a whole album that's like all just like screaming club, <laughs> like all, like, but like you know, you think about a song. Like, there's always that one. Like, you know, you think of you know, with, um, oh, we're halfway uh, living on a prayer. Like, I guess the whole song could be 
oh, we're halfway there, you know, the, where they're all, everyone's singing along. But it's great that it builds to it. Um, and I think that we can do the same thing with our voices where you are um, building to that crescendo where the audience is like screaming along with you. Um, and and, and, and in, in every, whether it's like at a corporate retreat or whether you're sitting in, you know, you're me sitting in my, uh, in my you know, caftan, like typing out nonsense on the internet. Well, and it's, it's, it's audiences need, regardless of what kind of audience, a book audience, a play audience, a show audience, a, an album listening audience, they need that tension and release because mm-hmm. it's too much. Like, like even if not to take this back to Taylor Swift, but to take it back to Taylor Swift, like if you look at folklore, like we needed mad woman, we mm. needed that song. We needed an angry like song in there. We needed something to balance it. We couldn't have a whole album of cardigan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing. Everything is rise and fall. And I think, you know, I'm not super, I'm not, I'm not wedded solely to the Aristotelian, you know, rising action. I think there are plenty of different graph shapes in terms of energy, in terms of narrative flow, but everything from voice um, to energy to the narrative itself um, has to like go someplace. And uh, otherwise, which is why I think that sort of like hold your hands in one position, use three words per slide, like the sort of standard mannequin public speaking style doesn't, doesn't always resonate because you're like, where am I on a journey with this person or are we stuck in like a timeless zone? Cause that makes me very nervous. Yeah. It's well, and you see that too on the, on when you, you know, and you've probably seen this with, uh, the moth or even with first arts, the time where somebody, you know, that they really, really, really worked on the story. They rehearsed that they got it. And then it's like, ah, it just doesn't sit as well in mm-hmm. front of an audience versus not something that's impromptu. We don't want you to just totally think you didn't care, but something that feels so overly scripted often doesn't work in that setting either. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, 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 and that's the hardest truth. You know, like it is a very important to pre-write. Um, but it's also at a certain point, um, you, like, unless you are a very, very gifted performer, like actor, like having something that is scripted word for word is always going to sound, this always going to put up this weird barrier between yourself and the audience. So you've got to have a little bit of uh, le- flexibility in there um, to, uh, to, for the unknown, for the audience's reactions, for the energy in the room. Otherwise, it's going to feel like, you are not fully plugged into what you're saying and the audience is not going to fully plug in either. Well, that's where having like a couple of good stories and a perspective mm-hmm. gets you really far on stage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And no, and, and like also knowing your material, you know, like I, um, I had the, the distinct pleasure of, uh, uh, doing a couple of speaking engagements with Stephanie land who wrote the book made, um, uh, which is a national bestseller and was on president Obama's, uh, uh, best books of last year. Um, and so I heard her tell, uh, some of the same stories a couple times, you know, in different events. Um, but they're so ingrained in, um, who, uh, in who she is. And, and also like, she's so practiced at those stories that even though, uh, it was scripted and even though, you know, she was going from like reading to speaking, reading to speaking, it's still, I, I was still, on the edge of my seat because um, because she was always, despite 
despite the fact that she knew exactly the words that were going to come out of her her mouth each time, she was always living in the now of the story. And, and uh, that gave access to a level of vulnerability that made the story real in real time, as opposed to something that was just a theoretical. Yeah. There's, there's, this idea too, with like having a script that you memorize and it's like, Oh, is it good? It's bad. And it's like, well, it's, it's, it can be both. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing how to, how to use that. Cause I, I feel like that's probably, she knew how to use the story. Yeah. Exactly. Versus just like, Oh, someone wound me up and let me go. Let me tell my story. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People like, it's like, it's a conversation. You know, we all have the, the anecdotes that we drag out at dinner parties or whatever. Um, but the best anecdotes, and I think we all can feel this, is when it like when it relates to what's happening in the conversation, and also when it's when it feels like something that is for the good of all listening, not just something that's like, well, I'm going to tell the story about uh, my fishing trip again uh, because it's my turn to speak. And it's like, okay, well, why? Why are we? Why are you speaking? Yeah, it's um. You know, you think of a book, you think of a book like Here For It, your book. Mm-hmm. And there's a million, you probably could have written 10 different books. You could have you could have chosen lots of different ideas to put in there. And you pick the ones you did to serve a certain purpose because mm-hmm. you've had a whole big life and you've had a lot of things happen to you. And you could have chosen lots of different stories, but you chose the ones you chose for a specific outcome. Right. And I right. think that's the thing people forget sometimes of like, I have to figure out my story. And it's like, well, you don't have a story. You yeah. only have a bunch of them and we need to figure out how to use them better. Yeah. No, I, that is one of the things I love so much about storytelling is that like, I, you know, pointing out to people and, and really drilling down that um, we are always editing. We are always picking a beginning and an end. If you say, well, this is my story. I'm like, well, did you die? Because that's the end. And, like, and that's not even the end of the story. You know, like I read one of my favorite things to do is I read the obituary section um, in the uh, New York Times every day. One, because it's great storytelling. Um, and two, because uh, it is always a reminder to me that even though, you know, like an obituary generally sketches an, an arc, or usually two arcs, you know, the first part of an obituary is like one sort of the main anecdote from the person's life. And the second one is like, they were born this point, at this point and they leave these people behind. Those, none of those is the definitive arc of a person's life. And so we get to say, and there are so many stories in the book um, that like there, there were so many things that happened within the context of that story after the point where I ended the chapter, but I get to say, this is a story about X, Y, or Z. And so like a lot of the way I feel like an anecdote goes from uh, being an anecdote to being a story is by figuring out what it's about and what what the larger idea that I'm trying to convey is. And once I know that, then the narrative begins to serve um, the the moral or the uh, the 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 theme uh, rather than just being something that happened. And w- when you were assembling and putting together and writing and and uh, stringing things together for here for it, what was that? If you if you're to say like, hey, this is the this is the specific thing, the theme for this book for people. What someone listening who, by the way, you should go read this book. It's uh, hilarious. It's amazing. You check out the reviews on Amazon. It will tell you all the greatness of it that you need to know. But for you, what was it that you said, here's the label I want on this? 
Yeah. No, I mean, like, I think I, I've i always thought of the book as a case for hope and every story inside the, every essay in the book, which in all the essays are story-based. Um, uh, I, I think the, the, the nugget of each essay is um, uh, testing whether it is, um, whether it is wise or prudent or useful to have any hope. Um, the, the general sort of journey of the book is moving from like having these marginalized identities, um, focusing mostly on being a queer person, being a black person, being a Christian, uh, under the larger umbrella of being an American and sort of testing whether those marginalized identities, black, black and queer, predominantly a marginalized Christian is not a marginalized identity, whether those can be moved from the margins to the center of the page. And so there is a, there's a march through the book uh, toward becoming. Um, and at every step of the way, I am asking myself and asking the reader, um, is, uh, is having hope that I will uh, exist in this world in a way that feels full and fully realized a fool's errand. Mm. It's, it's interesting too. I, I remember reading it and, and, you know, this is one of the power of storytelling, right? Is you read someone else's story and you think of yours, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was reading about, about, you know, like going to school in the suburbs, uh, you're writing about this. And I was thinking of my own experiences there and being like, oh, I want to so fully fit in here mm-hmm. as like a little gay kid. I want it, and a poor little gay kid. I wanted to fit in in this space. And then I also was very aware that I did it. And so it's like this idea of, who are we of becoming, of being hopeful for that, of trying to belong and then trying to figure out where do I belong? Like, mm-hmm. It's a really interesting thing. And I think it's one of the beautiful things that you were able to do in, in assembling this book and putting it together for us was to shine a light in your own experiences in a way that made, I, I think so many people look at their own and say, huh, how can I take the things that happened to me and turn them from anecdote to story? And I think that here for it helps a lot of people do that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, like, and that was sort of the the meta project of the book was to have a hyper specific, and you know, I think I'm sure you take this in your classes. That every storytelling class that I've taken has pointed out that, like, the uh, the more specific you can be, the more universal your story becomes, um, and uh, and that's which is just uh, like the random magic of storytelling. Um, you know, I can't I can't necessarily relate to uh, different people's circumstances, but I can relate to the human who is going through those circumstances. And if that human and those circumstances are clearly drawn, then I'm able to uh, empathize. And from empathize, uh, from empathy, then I'm able to sort of see myself in, in, in that circumstance as well. And so like the project of the book was, was as I'm trying to actualize myself throughout my life and, and, and find an integrated whole with all these different identities. Um, I'm also challenging and, and each reader to look at their own lives and their own identities. Um, and I think, you know, I, I wanted to create um, places where people who shared um, th- parts of my identities would see themselves. But I also wanted to say, like, if you don't see yourself in this, if you don't Go if you haven't been thinking about your sexual orientation. If you're a straight person, if you haven't been thinking about your race, if you're a white person, um, like what happens if you do? You know, um, and what happens if that is something that you are 
um, incorporating as part of your narrative and the way that you move through the world. Um, because I think that that helps us all to be more empathetic and more um, uh, more fully uh, human. Mm. And how does that, how does it shift when you say, okay, I'm sharing my perspective and even in the column for L.com, you're sharing your perspective about the news for your next project is putting together a book about, I think, an American, a national treasure in Maxine Waters. Mm -hmm. And so in Reclaiming Her Time, how do you take that same approach and say, okay, how do I weave a story about this person who is not me? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really, really, it, I mean, it's, it's a good question. It's something that I'm like, I think I've done it. I mean, we've gotten some good <laughs> reviews so far. You know, we'll see. Um, but I think um, the the key for me was plugging into, was, was sort of moving to the other side of that, that sort of empathy equation and saying, like, what are the details about Representative Waters' life and perspective that I need to know that can trigger my empathy response as a as a reader and as a spectator, um, and and all, but also while at the same time putting my own perspective. I, I'll give you an example. So um, there is uh, which which chapter should I talk about? Okay, so the, w- there's a really long chapter that I wrote um, about the LA uprising um, and uh, in 1992, and that was uh, the point where. Um, Representative Waters sort of became a lot of people became aware of her because she was a lot of the um, uh, the violence and uh, looting was happening in her district, and so she was showing up on CNN um, really regularly. And a lot of people at that point, uh, you know, and and present day as well, wanted her to sort of say like, "Oh, this, you know, uh, this looting and uprising and rioting is bad," and and instead she was like. And literally said, "What did you expect? These people have been given uh, nothing, and they've been—they uh, are constantly subjected to police brutality. And there's no jobs, and there's no economic opportunity. And it's gone on for years. And so she had empathy for her constituents. And so I, in writing about it, had to find the places in the story all the way along where I was both plugged into what she." was thinking and feeling in those moments and also what uh, the her constituents were thinking and feeling. And lastly, what I, uh, with the modern perspective, am thinking and feeling. And weaving all those three together, I think gives, hopefully gives a really rich narrative that also every, every step of the way is challenging the reader to not just sort of ingest history as, you know, as if this was a textbook, but to Imagine, well, what would I do in this circumstance? How would I feel in 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 her shoes? And that I think makes um, more powerful storytelling about another person. Mm. And this whole idea of of really, what would I do? I think it's so. I mean, it is the part of great historical narratives. And when we watch a movie or read something, would I be able to do that in the same place? Would I react that way or differently? And I think that's where somebody who's different, a different race, a different gender, a different orientation, that's where the empathy comes through. Mm -hmm. It makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, if you think about like a historical book or a a historical, um, uh, you know, movie, I don't think... 
um, by default, every uh, historical book or movie is um, is triggering triggering that empathetic response. Like some people just already have that. They're like, you know, you, you could watch a documentary and say, like, oh, I wonder what I would do. Um, although documentaries actually are often better story better storytelling than some historical movies, mm-hmm. uh, I think. But like, there you can tell when a writer or filmmaker is posing the question to you how do you can you find yourself in uh in this circumstance and what would you do um um and i think it's the clues that you get the clues that you can use as a storyteller or you know even as a viewer are like the places where the um the the character or the the primary subject if it's nonfiction is so vulnerable that it almost feels uncomfortable and you ask yourself why am i getting all of this human information when we're really just talking about facts historical facts and the reason i think is because uh it's an invitation to um to a, a deeper level of uh, of understanding um you know if i read you know i've read so much about say abraham lincoln's uh you know decision to um uh, assign the Emancipation Proclamation. I've been reading about that a lot recently, and everything I read about it is very interesting. And he's like, he had all these. There's all these competing factors, you know, and, and theories around what to do with the um, with the Confederacy. But none of the things that I've read so far really invite me in um, to the thinking, to the human part of it, um, to the place where he's not just uh a, a pick a figure encased in ember but he's a living breathing person and you know but th- that's possible for every story just like it's possible for our own stories yeah it's an interesting thing to think that we get to um to write our own as well that we get to help do that so when you think about the future obviously the big hope all of us have for you is that Reclaiming Her Time, The Power of Maxine Waters, sells all the copies in pre-order and all of them are gone in the first week. So it becomes a huge bestseller for you. But when you think about hope and stories and what you want for your future, what are you hopeful for? Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel really gifted that I that I get to write. Um, and so I am trying to test my ability and grow my ability to tell stories in as, in as many different mediums as possible. Um, so I'd love to, uh, you know, I mentioned writing, um, trying to translate my voice to television. I really want to learn how to do that. Um, I know how to be myself on television. I've been, you know, obviously I've been on television before as myself, but like, what, how do I apply that to the storytelling medium of television? How do I apply that to novels? Um, I just really want to like, continue to expand out the limits because I think that as I do um, it makes all of my storytelling efforts better and I found like I learned that from the very beginning like going from like just telling a story on stage uh, or, or even before that going from like being somebody who like told anecdotes at work or whatever to being somebody who got up in front of a, a crowd in a cabaret space or nightclub in front of and and spoken to a microphone and told stories that expands out and that expansion strengthens uh, all the different like storytelling roots that i have um so i just want to keep doing it and want to figure out yeah i'd love to learn how to like make do documentary storytelling you know just trying as many different ways to get at narrative authenticity 
I don't know about you, but I am inspired after that conversation with R. Eric Thomas. You can catch him on the internet at rericthomas.com or on Twitter at our. Eric. His uh, best-selling book, Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America, is available everywhere books are sold. And Reclaiming Her Time, The Power of Maxine Waters, is ready for your pre-orders. So get out there and do that. I will see you on the next episode of The Mic Drop Moment. This episode has ended, but your journey doesn't have to. Head on over to MikeDenino.com. Access all the resources and links that Mike and his guests shared today. And keep on crafting your own story. That's MikeDenino.com. Your audience is waiting. Isn't it time to find your hashtag mic drop moment? 